Welcome. Welcome, Gate City Vineyard Church. It's so great to be here. Do you realize that today we are completing our first sermon series together, our Who series? Woo, we've been together for a whole sermon series. Isn't it amazing? I'm kind of psyched about that. Like, it just seems like it went like that. And I am really, really blessed um, to be here with you all and to be able to finish up this series that we've been talking about on Who. Now, I know we have the kids here today. I'm so glad you're here. Thanks for coming. I hope you've got your sermon bingo ready to go. And, um, you know, if you're a kid and you go to school, you know that once in a while the teacher gives you a pop quiz, right? Do you like pop quizzes? No, that's a bummer, right? How about, what would you think if we gave all the grown-ups a pop quiz? How would that be? Would that be good? All right. We're going to give the grown-ups a pop quiz. We're going to see how well you've been paying attention in class. How much have you been paying attention to our Who series? I'm going to remind Pablo, don't put the answers up until they've said it, all right? So we're not going to let them cheat. Um, We're going to talk about the Who series, what we learned. What was the first topic of the Who series? Who is? Yeah, just call it out. Call it out. Who is God? And we talked about the characteristics of God, who he is. What were some of those characteristics? Anybody remember? Call them out if you got any. His loving? Sovereign? Sovereign. Any others? Just, he's just. Any others? And holy, yes, you got it, those four. So God is sovereign and just and holy and loving. And then we talked about how we know this is true. Why do we know this is true? Well, we looked at different evidence. We looked at evidence from the Bible. Does anybody remember any of the evidence from the Bible about why we believe God is true? Any of the evidence from the Bible? Wow, I don't know. They're going to get a bad grade on this quiz, don't you think? (laughs) We remember the evidence from the Bible is the prophetic record, the prophecies that were given and that were, that were true, that were uh, then fulfilled later on. We know because of the archaeological record, the archaeology, the things we find that prove things from the Bible. And we also know because of the 40 books that were written, or 66 books written by 40 different authors over thousands of years, that there's a consistency. So that's the, the, the evidence of the Bible. Does anybody remember any other evidence for why we believe in God? Anybody remember it? The science, the creation, the fact that the way God has made this world and the science points to God. Yes, absolutely. Anything else? Call out. Resurrection of Jesus. The fact that he rose from the dead and we have all kinds of things. The empty tomb, the changed lives of the disciples all point to the resurrection of Jesus. And finally, anyone remember the last one? The changed, our changed lives. All the people out here who have changed could say, Jesus made a difference in my life. That's how we know that it's true. Then we moved on to who are, we might remember this one better because it's all about us. <laughs> Isn't that something? Anyway, uh, we, are, we, we, we had some good news and some bad news on the question of who are we. What was the good news about us? We're made in what? God's image, we're made in God's image, so he has planted himself in us. But what was the bad news about us? We're sinners. We're sinners in need of grace, and thankfully there's good news on the, on the heels of that because we know that because of Jesus, we're forgiven and we're given grace, and we can begin to return to that image of God that we were made in. So that's who we are. We also talked about who, who we're, we are, us individually, but we're also what? The church, and Chris gave us a great message about who we are as the church, as a community. And then the last thing we talked about is who are we to love, yes. And we talked first about loving God. We're to love God. It's like we've got to grow that love like a flower in our garden. Then we talked about how we need to love one another last week. We talked about the church. And then finally this week, we're talking about loving everyone, everyone. 
How'd they do? I don't know. I mean, I was going to say B minus, but I'm not even sure it was quite that good. We'll, so we'll just give you a B, just, you know, we'll inflate the grade a little bit on that. But it's, it's amazing, really, when you think about it. We're ending to this week on who, who we are to love. It's everyone. And we're talking about what, what Jesus said to us. He said, love the, what are the two greatest commandments? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And so we've been talking about that. And Paul, the Apostle Paul, continues in Romans 13. He says, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not cover. And whatever other command there may be are summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. And so there's a reason that Paul says this is the fulfillment, and it's actually really awesome that we're concluding our series on this particular command, to love our neighbor as ourselves, because love is the fulfillment of it. It's appropriate we end on this note, because here's the thing. If we know who God is, and we love God, then we're going to love what he loves. And who does God love? Everyone. And if we know who we are, that we're made in the image of God, what does that tell us about everybody else we encounter? They're made in the image of God. And if we know that we are sinners in need of grace, what does that tell us about everybody we encounter? That everyone is a sinner in need of grace. So it should give us such love and respect for others to know all of these things. And so we're going to be talking about that today. Not only that, not only is, it a, is loving our neighbor kind of a fulfillment of everything we've been learning in this whole series, it's also kind of the proof. It's the proof in the pudding right? It's, it's, if we believe this stuff, this is how we're going to act. And John puts it very clearly in 1 John. 1 John 4, he says, dear friends, let us love one another for love comes with God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. So as Christians, we'd better be oozing love, right? We'd better be people who love. And so what's this supposed to look like? Well, thankfully, we have a really good answer to that question. Um, we have a, the same question was posed to Jesus in the story of the Good Samaritan. Anybody heard the, the story of the Good Samaritan before? Very common story that a lot of us have heard of. We're going to listen. We're going to look at it again today. Let's read it. Luke 10, 25 to 37. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, what is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So the man asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? There we go. That's the who question, right? Who are we to love? He asked it right there for us. What does Jesus do? He tells a story. Here's a story. Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. 
The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hand of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. This is how we're to love. I see four kinds of love here from the Samaritan. The first one is concrete love. Pay attention on your sermon bingo. That was a sermon bingo word. Concrete love. The Samaritan's love was very concrete and specific. Do you see that? How many times have you heard someone say, and maybe you've even said it, I love everybody. I mean, there's no one I don't love. I love people. And then there's that specific person. That's a lot harder to love, right? There's that specific person that just gets under your skin. Maybe it's a, it's a kid at school who's kind of a bully or kind of a mean kid. Maybe it's somebody in your workplace that's just unreasonable, a boss that's just demanding and never says anything nice. Maybe it's a family member, even a family member, that's hard to love. It's much easier to love in theory than in practice, right? <laughs> much easier. But Jesus is saying love concretely. And interestingly, he says... It kind of gives us a key to how, what does this mean to love, love concretely? He says, love your neighbor as we love ourselves. Now, most of us, when we hear that, we, in our 21st century kind of therapeutic mindset, we think, oh, good. What that means is that I've got to make sure I love myself and I've, you know, I'm really, I, I'm caring for myself and until I do that, I can't love other people. You know, I've got to take care of myself first. That's what we tend to interpret that verse to mean. Now listen, I am all about self-care, and I'm all about us loving ourselves. We're made in the image of God, after all. We should appreciate that, and we should take care of ourselves. We see Jesus going off into the mountains and praying to the Father, and we know he took care of his spirit so he could pour out. We know that David called out to God and let God speak to him and comfort him in his sorrows and in his fears and search his heart. So I'm all about us letting God care for us, taking care of ourselves, learning to love ourselves even, but I don't think that's what this passage is about. I don't think that's what it's saying here. He's saying, love your neighbor as you love yourself. Meaning, you already love yourself. You might say, how do I love myself? You get up every morning, you brush your teeth, you get yourself a cup of coffee, you, you want to sleep in a bed, you put clothes on, thank God, you put your clothes on. We find good food to eat, right? We eat our treats that we like. We watch our Netflix shows that we like. We get people go together with people we like. We love ourselves concretely all the time. We make sure the food that we like is in our cupboards. We love ourselves all the time. And Jesus is saying, love other people like that. Love people concretely. We love ourselves concretely. We take care of our concrete needs, so take care of the concrete needs of others. That's why the Bible's always saying, you know, share your food with the hungry. Give them your coat. Go to the people in prison. Help people concretely. That's what he's saying here. And um, I know so many of you, I'm getting to know more of you, and I know you're all really nice people. You're really kind-hearted, and I know you want to help people. I know you do. And yet, if you're like me, sometimes you look around and you say, but it who? Like, there's so many needs. I might have made a mistake, but I, I got my email. I got on my email the Greensboro News and Record emails that come to me now, about five of them a day. 
And every day, it's somebody else who needs something. Like it's somebody's got hurt, somebody's got shot, something terrible's happened. You know, always, there's always needs, right? And probably in your own family, you can tick off about five people who have a lot of practical needs, concrete needs that you could help with. And then there's people in this church, people in Greensboro, and there's people in our country, not to mention the bigger issues of, of racism and poverty and trafficking, all that stuff. There's all kinds of big issues in our in our country, and then don't even get started on the world, right? But Haiti and Afghanistan and Syria and Sudan, and there's so much need. So how do we figure out how to love people concretely? It's too much. I read this article recently by um, Nadia Boltz-Weber, who uh, is an interesting author, and she wrote this blog, and she called it, It's All Too Much. And she, she made something, she said something interesting. She was talking about this idea that on social media and the news, we get so much information about all the needs out there. And she says, you know, I think our psyches were not developed to take on the entire world's needs. We were developed more to live in communities and to take care of the people in our community. But now we're getting all this stuff from everywhere. And it's like an overload. It's like a circuit breaker when you put too much. You ever had a really full circuit breaker, then you plug in your hairdryer? And the whole thing goes, <laughs> I feel like we're like that sometimes, that, the, that, that we just get overwhelmed, and so we just do nothing then. We're like, I, what can I possibly do? My, my little help is like a drop in the bucket. How can I help people in Haiti or Afghanistan? How can I help the racism issue or poverty? How can I, how can I help? What can I do? And Boltzweber, I said something which is not all that profound. I've heard it before, but it's good to be reminded. She said, ask the question, what's mine to do? just mine to do? And what's not mine to do? What's the issue for me to care about and to do something about and step into? And what's not mine to step into? Edward Everett Hale put it this way, a 19th century pastor. He said, I am only one, but still I am one. I cannot do everything, but still I can do something. And because I cannot do everything, I will not refuse to do the something I can do. So I want us to just take a minute right now to think and ask the Lord, what's the one thing I'm supposed to be doing? Who's the person, that concrete person I can care for, maybe in my family, maybe right in my local area? What's the issue that maybe God has put on my heart that I care about and that I can do something about? Maybe there's a country that you can begin to, to give money to or, or pray for. Where, where, what is the one thing? Maybe there's a kid at school who sits alone every day and you can just go sit next to that kid. What is the one thing that I'm supposed to do? Amen? All right, that was number one. Number two, that's the kind of love that he gave, was concrete love. The second is unconditional love. Unconditional love. We don't know anything about this guy from Jericho, right? We don't know, or from Jerusalem. We don't know anything about him, do we? The guy who was hurt. All we know is that he was going from Jerusalem to Jericho. We don't know if he was a nice guy or if he was a really mean guy. We don't know if he was drunk or if he was an upstanding citizen and a leader in his community. We know almost nothing about him. He's just a person, a human being in need. In fact, he might have brought the whole thing on himself. He might have been drinking. He might have been, you know, kind of stirring up stuff with these robbers when they came along and they they came along and, and attacked him. He might have been making trouble. We just don't know. Apparently, the Samaritan didn't care. I think that's so interesting, right? You don't see the Samaritan asking, dude, what were you out here in the middle of the night for? Like, what, what are you doing all by yourself? You know it's a dangerous road. What's wrong with you? You don't see any of that, do you, from the Samaritan? He just helped. 
He just helped. And I think that's sometimes a sticking point for us is we think that if someone should have known better or if they brought it on themselves, then I shouldn't have to help them. I know I've sometimes thought that. We think, well, God helps those who help themselves, right? Where's that in the Bible? Does anybody know? God helps those who help themselves. Is that in the Bible? 52% of Christians believe it's in the Bible. Guess what? It's not. Yes, there's a lot in the Bible about working hard and being wise and making wise choices and all that, but it never says that God helps those who help themselves. It says that God helps everyone, right? He helps everyone. Not just those who didn't help themselves or help themselves. He helps everyone. Every one of us is going to struggle at some point in our life. Has anybody never made a bad choice? Never made a bad choice. Just always, every choice you make is perfect. Anybody ever done something that they regret, that they wish they'd never done? Anybody, you know, never said an unkind word, made a big mistake? Everyone makes a mess of things at some point, and yet God, yet God is there in his grace. He's there. We can do nothing without him. And so, you know what, it's interesting that I think so often Christians and the church are seen as judgmental, not loving. Right? If you asked out there in the world, I bet many people would say, we're not seen as loving, we're judgmental, because we somehow think that upholding God's truth means we've got to tell everybody all the things they're doing wrong. But that is not the way God comes to us, is it? That is not the way God comes to us. God comes to us like he came, like the father of the prodigal son came to his son who had done everything wrong, who had made all the bad choices, that prodigal son. And when he's coming back, before he can even get a word out, the father's doing what? He's running to him. He is running to him with arms open wide. He doesn't want to hear what he did or what he thinks about it now. No, he just, he just loves him. He is pulling him in. He says, give him a good robe. Let's, let's have a party. My son is back. That's the way God comes to us. And if that is the kind of unconditional love that God has for us, he who has every right to judge, then how much more us? How much do we have no right to judge and how much more should we simply love people, love them? Amen? Can I hear an amen to that? Love your neighbor unconditionally. The third kind of love is uncomfortable love. Uncomfortable love. The Samaritan was willing to love even though it would have been very uncomfortable to do so. Now, my guess is, if you've heard a, a talk about the Good Samaritan, as I'm sure many of you have, the, the, the real kicker of the story is that the good guy is the Samaritan. And, if you know, and it's so funny that Courtney mentioned this today. I'm not even sure if she knew I was talking about the Good Samaritan today, but she mentioned the fact that Samaritans were, were kind of hated people by the Jews. The Samaritans were part of the northern kingdom of Israel. So long into, just shortly into the monarchy, Israel split into Judah in the south, Israel in the north. And then some years later, 731 BC, the Assyrians came in and took over that northern kingdom. And so when the Assyrians came in, they pulled a lot of Jewish people out of there and they put a lot of their own people in. And so it became a very mixed, mixed nation. This place called Samaria, Samaria was now kind of a mixture of Jewish people and other people, all intermarried and so on. And so they didn't, they weren't pure. They didn't worship in the right way, the right way. And so a Jewish people 
a Jewish person would not have associated with them. They were, they were not respected. They would not have mingled. And so Jesus makes this very strong point that the Samaritan, the Samaritan is the good guy. And then he makes it even more startling because the two bad guys are the religious leaders, right? It's a priest, a priest, and a Levite, a Levite, religious people, holy men. Priests and Levites were expected to have the best behavior. And, you know, why did they pass by? Well, they might have thought that perhaps it would make them unclean to touch the man, particularly if he died, then they'd be unclean, right? That might have been one reason. They might have just felt it was beneath them. Holy leaders in that day were considered to be very um, upright and upstanding and important. In fact, there's probably people who would have said, yeah, you shouldn't stop. That's beneath you to deal with such an issue. That's probably how people would have felt about these priests and Levites. The fact of the matter is probably when it came down to it, for them to stop and get on their knees and help somebody who's all bloodied and everything would have been very uncomfortable. would have been very uncomfortable, very messy. Very messy. It's amazing how easy it is to justify our lack of love for others when they make us uncomfortable or when we know it's going to get messy. Is that right? It's amazing. I do it... And if you're honest, I'm sure many of you do as well. We, we think, eh, I'm not comfortable with that. It's going to be messy. But doing the right thing and loving others will sometimes make us uncomfortable. We have to go outside of ourselves. We have to start to approach things that are different and uncomfortable for us. In his excellent book, Generous Justice by Tim Keller, um, Tim Keller talks about the verse Micah 6.8. Uh, and it says we are to act justly and love mercy. And he makes a great point about this. He said, we tend to think of these as two different things, justice and mercy, as if they're two separate things. He says they're actually not. And I want to read you something he says. We're going to get into a little Hebrew here, all right? So everybody brace yourselves. Kids, they might be on your, your uh, sermon bingo, so pay attention if you're falling asleep by now. The term, this is what Tim Keller says in his book. He says the term for mercy is the Hebrew word chesed. Say chesed. Chesed. It's God's unconditional grace and compassion. And the word for justice is the Hebrew word mishpat. Say mishpat. In Micah 6, 8, mishpat puts the emphasis on action, whereas kesed puts the attitude or motive behind the action. So to walk with God then, we must do justice out of merciful love. Love desire, drives the desire to do justice. What the Samaritan did was justice, motivated by love. He was taking care of this man. So when we talk about loving others in the world, other people outside of here who may think differently than us, who may look different than us, then it has to involve justice. It makes no sense to say, I love you, but I'm not going to fight for justice for you. That is a complete disconnect. Does that make sense? We'll see this when we look at James. James is all about this. He says in James 2.6, I don't think it's up there, but if one of you says to a poor person, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? Our love for others must have feet on it, and it must be about bringing justice. It must involve defending and actively helping those who are in need. Keller points out, and I've talked about this before, and I wanted to flesh this out a little bit for you this morning, that there's five people groups that God singles out over and over again whom we are loved, 
whom we are to love, especially who need mishpat motivated by kased. Say mishpat motivated by kased. Mishpat motivated by kased. And they are widows, orphans, the poor, the immigrant or foreigner, and the oppressed. What? Look at these scriptures. They're, they're so strong. Isaiah 58. 6-7. Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen, to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them and to not turn away from your own flesh and blood? This is always considered a justice verse. This is exactly what the Samaritan did, right? It's exactly what he did. Clothed the naked, helped. He was doing justice. By loving his neighbor. This is how Jesus says, this is what loving our neighbor is like. Isaiah 1.17, learn to do right, seek justice, defend the oppressed, take up the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the widow. And this last one I think is so key, Zechariah 7, 8 to 10. And the word of the Lord came again to Zechariah. This is what the Lord Almighty says, administer true justice, show mercy and compassion to one another. There's that link again. Mercy, mercy, compassion, and justice. Do not oppress the widow or fatherless, the foreigner or the poor. Do not plot evil against each other. Love for neighbor means doing justice, practical justice, systemic justice. It's doing justice for those who are in need. That's what distinguished the Samaritan from the Levite and the priest, that he had unconditional love and walked forward in what was an uncomfortable situation. And loved this man, this man who was powerless to help himself, no matter how uncomfortable it made him, no matter how it wasn't even his responsibility to help. And obviously the system was broken. Police should have been helping the guy. Nobody was helping the guy. It wasn't the Samaritan's fault, but he helped him anyway. He loved him anyway because he's made in the image of God. So that's uncomfortable love. May we be willing to be made uncomfortable when we love one another. Finally, it's an above and beyond love. We see the Samaritan going above and beyond all the things he did for this poor fellow that he didn't have to do. He could have just done one thing. He did a whole bunch of things. Gave him money, brought him into the inn, gave instructions and so on. He's acting like God here. God is so generous and lavish with us, is he not? 1 John 3, see what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. We we deserved none of it, but God has poured out his love so lavishly on us, and so we're participating with him when we're like that with other people. Lavish, unexpected. I want to share with you this little passage from a commentary on the book of Luke by J.B. Green. It's a little dense, but just follow with me here because I love the way he puts this. He says, The care of the Samaritan offers is not a model of moral obligation, but of exaggerated action grounded in compassion, that risks much more than could ever have been required or expected. He stops on that Jericho road to assist someone he does not know in spite of the self-evident peril of doing so. He gives of his own goods and money freely, making no arrangements for reciprocation, no payback. He doesn't ask for anything back. In order to obtain care for the stranger, he enters an inn, itself a place of potential danger. And he even enters into an open-ended monetary relationship with the innkeeper, a relationship in which the chance of extortion is high. Crazy, right? It's unbelievable, really, what this man does. It's over the top. It's lavish. Neighbor love knows no boundaries. 
Jesus says, if someone asks to take your shirt, do what? Give them your coat also. He says, if someone tells you to walk one mile, do what? Go two with him. Lavish, over and above love. And I want to just say one thing as an aside here. What this does not mean is that we allow ourselves to be abused or taken advantage of by people who have power over us. Sometimes these verses can be used to justify women staying in abusive relationships or people bullying or hurting other people who are kind to them. That's not what this is about. This is about you and me in our own strength, in our own, uh, in our own decision, by our own means, without coercion, without pressure, freely giving to others. It means getting out of our self-centeredness and our self-preoccupation, self-absorption, and giving generously to others. It's to those who've been given much, to, much is required of giving out to others. That's what this is about. So let's think about how we can do that. How can we go above and beyond? Maybe those people that came to mind earlier today when I said, think about who you're supposed to be. What's that one thing, that one person, that one issue? How can I go above and beyond there to love that person? We need to go above and beyond in this church. I want us to be a place so that every interaction anyone has with us, whether in our homes or our workplaces or here in this church, that they sense the love and the care and the welcome of God in this place. We need to go above and beyond. This is one of the things that's very important to us as leadership here at the church, is that anyone who walks in, that this is a place of welcome. In fact, who remembers what the theme of VBS was this year? So call it out. Come to the table. And who remembers the theme song of VBS this year? Go ahead. It was, um, everybody's always welcome here. Do you remember that? Everybody's always welcome here. Sing it if you remember it. Everybody's always welcome here. God loves you. God loves you. Let me make it clear. Everybody's always welcome here. That was the theme song, right? We sang it over and over and over again. Yes. The kids got this right. The kids do this automatically. They don't even think about it. They just welcome whoever comes. But we grown-ups need a little more intentionality, I think. Because we get used to not welcoming people. We get used to not going above and beyond. It's going to take above and beyond for us to make that truth true here in our church. And so we're going to be seeking out those things. We want to remove barriers to people who might be different than us who would come into this place so they would feel welcomed. And we want to not only remove barriers, but add in ways that we can love people, that we can show welcome to anyone. If someone would come into this place and maybe they don't believe anything about God, maybe they believe completely opposite things, or maybe they're a seeker, I want them, if there's anything we can do to make them feel welcomed and loved here, we ought to do it, don't you think? If there's any way we can make a person of color or a person from another country come in here this place, an Asian person, a Native American person, come into this place and feel loved and welcomed, we ought to do it, don't you think? There's a way that we can make a person who has, uh, comes into this place who has a different view, maybe has a different lifestyle, a different orientation, who has a different issue in their life, who has different opinions than we do, who votes a different way than we do. Don't you think we should make them welcome and loved in this place? If there's somebody who is physically, differently physically abled, mentally challenged, has any other kind of issue and comes into this place, shouldn't we make them feel as loved and welcomed? as we can. 
Let's be a place where everyone is welcome. Everyone is welcome here. Everyone can come to the table to learn about Jesus. It's about him. It's about learning from him. It's about bringing our lives before him. It's about encountering him. That's what our worship is about. That's what this is about, is encountering the true Jesus. And by the way, this is the vineyard way that everyone is welcome. You come as you are to Jesus, and he meets you right where you are. And even more than that, it's the Jesus way. (laughs) Even better than being a vineyard way, it's the Jesus way. So we come to the end of the story. And at the end of the story, Jesus simply says this, go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. Um, I'll tell you a little story. Many years ago, a pastor of ours um, was doing a sermon on the Good Samaritan. And to, uh, right before the sermon, unbeknownst to us, or right before the service, unbeknownst to us, he had a friend position herself out on the street, just a little bit down from the church, next to her car on the side of the road with the hood up, and she's looking like she's in distress. She's acting, you know, but she's looking like she's in distress at the side of the road. And so we all came to church, and he starts talking about the Good Samaritan, And he wants to know who stopped to help the person at the side of the road and who just drove on by to get to church on time. Well, I thankfully, I was off the hook because I got there early because I was on the praise team. So the the lady wasn't out there yet, so I have no idea. I'm pretty sure I probably wouldn't have stopped anyway. But, you know, at least I I didn't get the test. Yeah, Anyone want to take a guess as to how many people stopped to help the lady on the side of the road? Zero. Zero. Zero stopped. It's a very nasty trick, I thought. I mean, really, Sunday morning. Aren't you glad I didn't do that to you? (laughs) It's hard for us to go outside of our comfort zone, but I also used to get hung up on that because I would say, look, it's not really smart in the 21st century for me, a woman, to stop to help some guy on the side of the road. I don't know if this is just a setup or whatever. Like, and what do I know about cars? I can't really help him. So, you know, I, I got hung up on the specifics of the story. And to be perfectly honest, that specific problem doesn't come up all that often, at least around here. But what it's the point of this story is that this is just one of countless ways that we might encounter people in need. And you're encountering people in need every single day in your families, at your workplace, at school. And so the question is, am I being a neighbor to those people? Am I offering concrete love, unconditional love, uncomfortable love, above and beyond love. That's what we want to do. Amen, church? Amen? What's the one thing you're called to do? The one issue that you can pour yourself into, the one person whom you can love concretely today, this week. Let's love like Jesus loved. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you, Lord, that you loved us so much. When we didn't deserve it, When we were apart from you, you love us even now when we should know better and we make...